podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. And the winner of the Oscar is... Elton John and Tim Rice, can you feel the love tonight? Many thanks to everyone at Disney, and in particular, as it's a musical thing, Mr. Hans Zimmer. I'd also like to thank Dennis Compton, a childhood hero of mine. Over to Elton. That was Tim Rice's speech at the 1995 Academy Awards that caused some confusion at Walt Disney Studios, as no one had ever heard of Dennis Compton there. A Disney employee admitted that Compton doesn't appear to be at Disney Studios or have anything to do with him. In 1995, and even more recently than that, cricket was not a popular sport in the USA. That is quite sad because probably one of the best cricketers of all time was an American. He had been playing less than 100 years before Rice's speech, when cricket used to be massive in the United States. He was a man who Don Bradman called America's greatest cricketing son. Plum Warner said, at the top of his power and speed, he was at least the equal of the greatest of them all. He was a Philadelphian superstar called John Barton King. In recorded matches, Bart King had over 16,000 runs at 33, with 2,900s. If you add in many of the unarchived ones, the hundreds go up to 39. In 1902, he scored 344 in a match. But batting was not even what he was renowned for. He was a bowler, a devastating quick His 2,000 wickets came at 10.67, even for that era, that is just a stupid number. In first-class cricket alone, he took 415 wickets, an average of 15.65. These were 42% of his team's wickets. And he was among the pioneers of a craft that is still one of the greatest weapons of all new ball bowlers. The swerve, which is what they called it then, we just now call it swing. Like most American cricketers of that era, he had played some baseball in his early days. And when he came to cricket, he brought with him the ability to swerve the ball in the air. He wasn't even the only fast bowler of that era who was looking towards baseball. The Australian bowler, the demon, Fred Spothoff, also looked to baseball because they realized that in that sport, the ball was moving in the air more than we were doing in cricket. But it wasn't the only thing that Bart King brought across. Like baseball pitchers, he hid his grip. Almost 100 years before, Waza Makram and others would do it when they were bowling reverse swing. Overarm bowling had been legalized in 1864, but the quicks themselves were still learning new crafts. King figured out that the new ball could swing in the air, and he learned how to make the most of a strong breeze. As a baseball pitcher, of course, he would throw the ball, but King the fast bowler had to deliver without bending his arm. But he figured out the mechanics and worked very hard and developed a ball that came in viciously. This ball, he called the angler back then. We now just refer to it as an inswinger. And how good was King? We've hyped him up a fair bit. In 1893, the Australian Test Squad toured the USA on the way back from an Ashes tour. The gentleman of Philadelphia made 525 runs. King made 36 of those, batting at number 11. The Australians were then clueless against his swerve bowling. He took seven wickets and Philadelphia won by an innings. The Australian captain, Jack Blackham, told the Americans, you have better players here than we have been led to believe. They class with England's best. King's Philadelphians beat Australia's Ashes side twice more in 1896 
and 16 years later in 1912, he took 17 wickets from these matches. And it wasn't just at home that he was a star. King toured England in 1897, and he took 72 wickets at 24. In 1903, he took 78 wickets at 16. And by 1908, he took 73 wickets at 12.126. Yes, I'm adding the decimal place there so you know just how low that average was. It was the best bowling average of the summer. And when we say best bowling average, we don't just mean like of the USA bowlers. We're including the English bowlers who played in the county championship. Against Sussex in 1897, he scored 58 and took 13 wickets, 10 of them bowled. One of those was Ranji, first ball. The Jam Sahib later said that it sprang at him like a tiger. He was so impressed that he gifted King a lighter, replete with a ruby and its own royal insignia. I believe today you can find that lighter in a museum in Connecticut. King also averaged 20 with a bat on these trips. Against Surrey in 1903, he took six wickets, but made 98 and an unbeaten 113. He was just born in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are some of these associate cricketers, as good as their numbers are, we just don't know how they would have gone against the best teams in the world. County cricket was the strongest form of cricket at that time. And he was absolutely dominating some of these teams. If King had been born in Australia, England or South Africa, he probably goes down as one of the most famous names in our sport. But unfortunately, he never played any tests and was not a county player and was restricted to club cricket, mostly in America. And despite the fact that he toured with the gentlemen of Philadelphia, which of course is a connotation that means that most of them weren't quite posh, if anyone addressed him as Mr. King in England, he would respond with, call me Bart. He made it very clear that he was a professional cricketer and that he was not born an aristocrat and had no qualms to admitting that fact. And he played cricket in an era where that really mattered because it was completely a sport for the elite in the USA by that point. And the reason he kept playing is because the other rich people wanted him in their side. So they got him a comfy job in the insurance industry. King played for about two decades before the First World War in what historians often call the golden age of cricket. Think of some of the other players who have come out of that era. Hurst and Rhodes, Trumper and Hill, Woolley and Hobbs, Giffen and Trott, Briggs and Lohman, Stoddard and Jackson, and Sinclair and Faulkner. From everything we know about his record and what he did, he should have been in that company. In fact, I think this story tells it best, and I can only hope it's true. When he was in England, he was so dominant that to get around the rules of having to be from the county to play for them, one county team reportedly offered him the chance to marry a rich local widow if he chose to play for them. How good was Bart King? Rich widow worthy. This series of Double Century is about mischances, the teams that got away. For the longest time, the narrative of cricket was only the teams that ended up with test status actually loved the game. But there have been others that have shown that same passion, but who, for many varied reasons, did not move into test cricket. In this episode, it's the USA, an ancient cricketing power. This is about the oldest international cricket rivalry, one of the greatest cricketers of all time, Frankenstein's monster, Bradman, 10 ball overs, and a battle with baseball. The first definitive mention of cricket was in 1709 in the diary of William Byrd, a British planter, author, and slave owner in Virginia. He wrote, I rose at 6am and Colonel Ludwell, Nat Harrison, Mr. Edwards, and myself played cricket. 
It had become very popular in USA over the 18th century. The first recorded match was in 1751 between New York City and a London 11. That was seven years after the first laws of cricket were written in England. When Benjamin Franklin returned from England in 1754, he actually brought a copy of the laws with him. The Americans also invented their own version called Wicket. There were 30 fielders and three innings, and the matches were over inside a day. In 1778, two years after the USA became independent, George Washington played wicket at least once. Of course, baseball itself is related to cricket, but some think it was more directly inspired by rounders, which is probably also inspired by cricket. So you'll have to work that one out on your own. After independence, the Americans lost interest in most things British. Weirdly enough, not so much cricket. It remained surprisingly popular. By 1800, about 5,000 people were playing in just two cities of Philadelphia and New York. In another 50 years, it spread to 22 other states and about 1,000 clubs. Newspapers at that stage would often cover more cricket than baseball. The first of these clubs had been founded in Haverford in 1833. In 1844, the USA hosted Canada for the first ever international match where Manhattan is today. The story goes like this. In 1840, a man called Phil Potts had invited the St. George's Club of New York to Toronto for a match. This was a hoax, but the Canadians were a nice even back then, so they assembled some players and went on to play a game. In 1844, the Canadians came over, and this time it was no hoax. This was the first ever international match of, well, kind of any sport. Canada won by 23 runs in front of at least 5,000 people, some sources say as high as 10,000. The USA and Canada still play matches today for the K.A. Aughty Cup, the longest-running rivalry between any two countries in any sport. In 1859, a group of English cricketers toured North America. This was the first English squad to tour, well, anywhere. A very strong team consisting of George Parr, John Wisden, Robert Carpenter, William Caffin, H.H. Stevenson, and John Lillywhite. Two more teams came from England in 1868 and 1873. W.G. Grace was part of that second side. Cricket was at the peak of its popularity in the USA around this period, but the first blow came during the Civil War. The soldiers at the camps realised that baseball took only a couple of hours and could be played anywhere, but cricket lasted all day and it also needed a pitch to be prepared over time. You also had someone like Harry Wright, who was a bowler and coach at the St. George's Club in New York and the Union Cricket Club in Cincinnati. He also played baseball. Cincinnati Red Stocking signed him up after the Civil War. He took the strategies, batting techniques, and field placements from cricket to baseball. In 1869, the Red Stockings played 57 matches and lost none of them. Everyone wanted to be like them. And as they became popular, so did baseball. And cricketers began to switch sports. Baseball established itself as the people's sport in America. Cricket became restricted to pretty much just the elite. In 50 years, it would leave cricket far behind in the USA. But the amateurs refused to give up. Cricket did not have the people, but it did have a lot of money. By the 1880s, Philadelphia emerged as a superpower. They formed a team by recruiting from clubs like Germantown, Marion, Belmont, and Philadelphia. Sometimes they played as Philadelphia, sometimes as the gentlemen of Philadelphia. In all, they won 29 first-class matches and lost 45, but that included three tours of England and one of Jamaica. Ranji Horden, who played seven test matches for Australia 
and because he looked slightly non-white, was given the racist nickname of Renji, also played for Philadelphia. It was also George Patterson, whose 271 is still the highest first-class score for an Associate Nations cricketer. John Thayer toured England with Philadelphia in 1884. On the 15th of April 1912, he became the only first-class cricketer to sink with the Titanic. The Halifax Cup was a club tournament in Philadelphia that ran from 1890 to 1926. From 1911, the matches had 10-ball overs, more than a century before England introduced it in the 100. Yet American cricket was fast approaching a decline. When the ICC was formed in 1909, they had Australia, England and South Africa, but not the USA. By this point, the elites of America had found tennis and golf. And if there was going to be a political case for America to be involved in test cricket, there probably just wasn't anyone left to make it. No first-class match was played in Philadelphia after the First World War. And once Babe Ruth happened to America, well, cricket really never stood a chance against baseball again. It resurfaced at the other end of the vast country on the West Coast through the strangest place. C. Aubrey Smith had led England in South Africa's first ever test match. A fine stage actor, he later moved to cinema where he played kind of the bumbling posh person in many different movies and ended up with his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Though it does fail to mention that he took 5 for 19 in his only test, plus 346 first-class wickets at 22. 1932 was an interesting year in American cricket. Arthur Maley organised a tour of the Australian cricketers to North America, and that squad included one Don Bradman, publicised as the Babe Ruth of cricket. Bradman had a pretty good tour, including winning a fancy dress contest in a ball. He made 3,777 runs, took six wickets in an eight ball over, and met Babe Ruth. And part of the reason that he met Babe Ruth, of course, was that Don Bradman's name still meant something to the few people holding on to anything about cricket. But in that same year, C. Aubrey Smith and Boris Karloff started teaching cricket at the University of California in Los Angeles. Smith founded the Hollywood Cricket Club. Karloff, P.G. Woodhouse, Cary Grant, Errol Flynn, Lawrence Olivier were all members at one point or another. The matches were obviously not quite test level, but the Hollywood Cricket Club kept cricket relevant on the West Coast. And if you don't know who Karloff was, his most famous role was as Frankenstein's monster. And he was also the wicketkeeper for the Hollywood Cricket Club. I am not saying these two things are related. The USA, of course, kept having brushes with cricket. In 1959-60, Dwight Eisenhower intended a test match in Karachi. The next year, the United States of America Cricket Association was founded. That one no longer exists. The year after that, the Aughty Cup resumed after a half a century. Three years later, the USA became an ICC associate member, probably 70 or so years after they should have been. But cricket never regained its popularity from 50 years earlier. The resurgence began much later thanks to expatriates and their children, mostly from the subcontinent or the Caribbean, particularly students. In fact, if it wasn't for the students and some of the professors and lecturers, we wouldn't have ESPN Crickinfo today. Crickinfo started because of a lot of students from Australia, from New Zealand, from India, from Pakistan, from the West Indies, all moved to the USA to study. And when they got there, they realized there was no cricket. Essentially, as the internet was growing, so was Crickinfo. And by 1996, it was one of the world's biggest websites. And that was largely on the back of a lot of these students in America. Simon King, who was the main founder of Crickinfo, did a lot of his best work on cricket while he was in the frozen confines of Minnesota. A couple of years after that, the ICC launched the Champions Trophy. And they initially toyed with the idea of hosting the inaugural edition at the Walt Disney World in Florida. They eventually settled for Dhaka in Bangladesh. 
the second happiest place on earth, I suppose. In 2004, the USA won the ICC Six Nationals Challenge to qualify for the Champions Trophy. In 2006, they qualified for the Under-19 World Cup and finished above four other teams. But perhaps the biggest moment was what happened in 2015 with the bizarre Cricket All-Stars. That's where Sachin's Blasters played Warren's Warriors for three T20 games. Tendulkar and Ward unveiled their jerseys and drew lots to pick their teams in Times Square. The two legends led their sides, and there was a lot of legends there. Lara and Kellis, Mahela and Sanger, Donald and Pollock, Ambrose and Walsh, Shoab and Lee, McGrath and Murali, they were all involved. The matches were played at baseball grounds in New York, Houston and Los Angeles. America had never seen an ensemble cricketing class like this before. Even if, when you were watching it, some of the fast bowlers were steaming in as if they were running through tar. In 2010, New Zealand and Sri Lanka played three T20 internationals at Lauder Hill in Florida. Since then, several teams have played international matches there. There's also been CPL games played in Florida. The T20 leagues have actually been quite good for the USA cricket. It's brought them closer to the West Indies. Ali Khan, Hayden Monsh, Stephen Taylor all played in the CPL. Stinkahar Paul, Isani Vagala, Jitik Kadali were all part of the inaugural women's CPL and the 60. Kadali was only 14 when she debuted for the USA. At 18, she led the USA under-19s to a 4-1 win against the West Indies under-19s. She then became the first bowler to take a hat-trick at the 60. And we'll wait for this decision, but it's crystal clear what the outcome will be. Just unbelievable out, and it's a hat-trick for Geetika Kodali. Hayden Walsh Jr. went from being a USA cricketer to the West Indies, but it's certainly not a one-way thing. Of recent times, Clayton Lambert, Xavier Marshall, and Rusty Tehran have all played for the USA after being involved with other sides. And of course, recently there has been a move with Corey Anderson, Liam Plunkett, Dean Peet, Unmuk Chand all moving there. And why are they there? Because the first season of Major League Cricket will begin on July 13 next year. 19 matches, 18 days, 6 teams, but sadly, no Philadelphia. The Grand Prairie Stadium in Texas is still under construction, but they're hoping it will be the best cricket venue in the country. Grand Prairie will host matches at the 2024 T20 World Cup, which the USA will host with the West Indies. As hosts, the Americans have already qualified. We don't really know what is going to come from this. There is certainly money in American cricket. They currently have a minor league competition and a lot of stars that you would have heard of like Rakim Cornwall turn up in that competition. Not to mention that a player like Nicholas Puran, when he was struggling to get picked for Trinidad, went off and played club cricket in the USA. There is money there. There is some interest. But how does it grow? At the moment, the spiritual home of cricket in the USA is no longer Philadelphia. And it's also not Lauderhill. It's also not the Grand Prairie Stadium. It's Morrisville, this small area between a bunch of universities that just happen to have caught fire when it comes to cricket. The local population do seem to like the game in that area, but is that going to spread to other areas? The local population do seem to like cricket around there, but is that going to spread to other areas? The 1994 FIFA World Cup boosted football in that country, and it's not like it flipped a switch overnight, but maybe it could do something similar for cricket as well. It's hard to see how hosting a World Cup and having a proper T20 league is not going to be a boost for cricket in that country. And it certainly needs it after a long time. And think of this, modern US players won't have to work in insurance in order to play cricket. They'll just be paid to do that, real American dollars. But they won't be traded for rich widows because none of them are as good as Bart King, yet. 
Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad free, you can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced, and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co-produces the show. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.